This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Sister Simone Campbell. Download the MP3 of our produced show with her at onbeing.org. Hello. Welcome to On Being. Um, How many people have been here before? All right. A small few, but more than last time, and then my two boys in the back. Uh, So uh, this is On Being with Krista Tippett, and this is what we've become in the last 18 months. Uh, We're an independent media organization, but we're much more than that now. We'd like to think of ourselves as a social enterprise with a radio show at our heart. And is that right, Krista? Yeah, that's right. right. (laughs) And and part of of this is uh, the physical manifestation of all the values we hold true. And so thank you for coming, and we're really pleased to have Sister Simone here. Um, I will ask you a few of the housekeeping duties uh, about the phones. Everybody has their... You can tweet. We encourage tweeting here. As a matter of fact, I think the hashtag we're promoting is Ask Sister Simone. Uh, and we will be taking questions <laughs> from the audience. On Twitter. And so uh, you'll probably notice uh, note cards. And for those of you, I know some of you, if you're like me, you might be a little shy. So you like to write down your questions. Others, they want to grab the mic right out of your hand. So we have both options tonight, and Lily will be coming around with the mic. But if you have a question during the audience, during, during the talk, please write it down, and we'll collect it. With about 45 minutes in? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and then I'd just like to encourage you also, uh, we, uh, we have a newsletter, and we have a podcast. And our podcast is actually our digital growth area. And, um, and uh, what was it? Two weeks ago, we had Mary Oliver, uh, the poet Mary Oliver. Who's heard that interview? And it's fabulous, and it's rare. She doesn't sit down that much. As a matter of that fact, it's, there's some great stories yeah. that maybe Krista will tell you later about. Uh, uh, but, the, but the joke around the, uh, around the staff has been, how many times does she flick her dick later? While she's, uh, yeah, so, uh, but it's a wonderful interview, and we have that up on the website. You can download that for free, along with her poem, She Reads Wild Geese and uh, several other poems. And uh, we had one this week for Valentine's Day with Helen Fisher, who talks about love and sex and attachment. And it's really dynamic. I encourage you to listen to that. And then in um, next month, we're going to have John Paul. We're going to talk about race and all of its splendor and all its transformational moments that we can uh, muster up. So thank you. And uh, any other things that I need to check in on? Chris? Good? All right. I'll hand it over. All right. Thanks, Trent, it's so wonderful to have all of you here at On Being on Loring Park. Um, Sister Simone and I were together this summer in New Mexico at a place called Ghost Ranch, and we were reflecting on how different the weather was (laughs) (laughs) in New Mexico in July. (laughs) Um, But so I, um, you know, I said at that point, if you ever come to the Twin Cities, we want to have you, and so I'm just thrilled that we could make it happen, and that you're all with us. And yeah, as Trent said, we will talk for about 45 minutes up here, and then we'll open the conversation up, and we'll bring it back here to end, and we'll just be about 90 minutes. Um, I don't think there's anything else I have to say. Um, so, Simone, welcome. Thank you. So much. And um, tell me this... Um, it doesn't seem to me when I, when I read about your early life that there was anything that pointed at necessarily or dictated that you would enter a religious order in that, in that spiritual background of your childhood. 
Probably not. Um, I was a spiritual kid, uh, but I got a few things wrong as a little kid. Uh, When I was about four or five, I heard my mom teaching catechism and to the older kids, probably second grade. And um, I heard that the mass was a miracle. And so I set out to try to figure out what the miracle of the mass was and got to study what the priest did, figuring out what the miracle was. Well, what I saw was him pouring water and wine into the chalice and putting his hands over it like abracadabra. And then I think my attention wandered for a bit because the next thing I knew, he was wiping out the chalice. So I figured that the miracle was he made the water and wine disappear. And so my discovery of a spiritual... Uh, sense was kind of magical in the beginning and but I also knew that nobody talked about what the miracle was so I just kept the secret to myself <laughs> till I was a grown up but I think what mattered most to me as a, a young person was that Jesus had in a sense had consequences that it was part of life and I realized, looking back, that I spent a lot of energy trying to include everybody. And that piece, I think, probably had the, the, the most spiritual nuggets of, that's led me to this religious life. And being a sister of social service is kind of a, um, I don't know, what can I say? Kind of a rabble-rousing crowd anyway. So <laughs> um, just tell a little bit of that story of... Of what drew you, how you walked into becoming, um, to join a a religious order, becoming a sister of social service? Well, I knew my community through this summer camp that my sister and I went to as kids. And so. This community. My community. Yeah, we had had, uh, settlement, we have settlement houses, we have camps, we have um, all kinds of social services in California. And we went to camp, and the magic of camp was that girls came from all over the Los Angeles Basin from all different economic strata, and I was a kid from a tract house in Long Beach, and we made community for a week. It was just magic. So that was that was a big piece of it. But then when I was a freshman in college and was doing sit-ins at the Board of Education, I remember this very... <laughs> fast forward. Fast to forward. To the sit-ins, yeah. To the sit-ins. And this was but, the 60s, I think? Uh, uh, yes, yeah. it was the 60s. <laughs> and yeah. um, I had been, my sister and I had been really concerned about civil rights and all of that as kids. And, you know, I'd watched the demonstrations on television. And so when I got to college and could get involved in that, then it became really important. And, but I remember sitting in at the board of education, Los Angeles County for integration of the Los Angeles schools. And I realized that I didn't want to just do it with people who wanted the same goal of integration. I really wanted to share it with people who shared the same why, the same reason. And for me, it was all about faith. Um, I sort of joke about a lot of things, but I say Jesus and justice both begin with J. So, you know, it's the same letter, same idea. So my thing always was that civil rights was rooted in faith. And then that led me to joining our community. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the sisters of 
There's quite a complex family tree of Catholicism, <laughs> all right, and of religious orders, and yes. and and many of them we we've, we've heard. Well, some of them we've heard a lot about, and this is one of these branches that's, I think you've made well known, the Sisters of Social Service. It's a really interesting. You follow the rule of Saint Benedict, um, but it's a it's a community with a long history, um, a long lineage of, of this intersection of faith and politics. Right, right, because our founding was uh, really in Hungary in 1923 and then in Los Angeles in 1926. And our foundress, Margaret Slakta, was the first woman in parliament in Hungary when she was the head of our community. Right. She actually got elected before women had the vote because our sisters were organizing the women's suffrage movement at the time. So all the women got their husbands to vote for her. So the first vote that she could cast was in parliament, which I just think is a a really cool story. But then our sisters um, came to the United States because economic situations were so bad to get money to send back. And... um, so we were in, my community was an immigrant community for right. a very long time. What did I also read that, so it's in Budapest, and it was, it, the, this, the order was founded in part in response to the Pope at that time had made a call to work for just wages and safe working conditions in the midst of the Industrial Revolution. That's so interesting. Right, and, and the sisters there started the first schools of social work. Start, organized uh, juvenile uh, detention facilities that were humane and educated kids, as I said, with the women's suffrage movement. All of these uh, social issues were engaged. And our foundress, Margaret, said that, well, if um, the, the, her approach was that if God would wipe away the tears, bless the people who wiped away the tears of people who suffered. Wouldn't God also bless the people who didn't, who made it so that tears were not shed? And it was that insight that combined the charity and justice aspect of our, of our mission. And uh, for me, it's been really a, a wonderful adventure. How old were you when you joined? <laughs> I was a child. <laughs> I thought I was a grown-up. I was 18, almost 19. It was after my freshman year in, high, in college. Yeah. So I thought I was grown-up. What do I know? And you know, it's an unfamiliar trajectory um, now in the 21st century to think of an 18-year-old young woman. I mean, I think there's so many things about you um, also that defy stereotypes about nuns if people have stereotypes about nuns or they just don't know much about nuns. I mean, I I really love this picture on the cover of your book where I think you look like a friendly, successful, formidable lawyer, perhaps, in your amazing red dress. And you are a lawyer, (laughs) right? Which I didn't even know when Um, I started hearing about you and the nuns on the bus. Um, And there's a great story that you've told about how you became a lawyer. So you, are, you were already a sister. Yes. And when was this? Maybe your 20s? Right. I was um, probably about 25 and uh, doing social work uh, up in Oregon, Portland, Oregon, and organized all of these um, tenants to go down to Salem and 
advocate for tenants' rights legislation because they were living in really bad housing and it was wrong and, you know, righteous indignation of youth is so wonderful. And then I, I got down there with my the witnesses. There was a bunch of us and we had a whole team and this one curmudgeon of a legislator said to me, well, what about the covenant of something or another? And I didn't know what he was talking about. And he was speaking about a piece of legal... A legal jargon, kind of, yeah. something that was going to wipe away all of the stories of these fabulous people because of the covenant of something or another. And, ooh, it made me mad. And so I hate power imbalance. I just hate power imbalance. So... I decided, well, I needed to go to law school if I was going to do this work. So that's, so you did. So I did, yeah. <laughs> but before I did, uh, I'd go home, and I had this insight, and i go to our house, and, and I lived with five other sisters, and so I said, I figured out what I was going to do. Uh, I was going to go to law school, and one of our sisters, a good friend of mine, Patricia, says to me, nobody's ever gone to law school. Uh, you just think you're just going to go off to law school? I mean, who's going to agree to you going to law school? Oh, so I wrote a whole paper on why it made sense for me to go to law school. I went to law school. But but Pat's gift to me was that I I would have just thought it was self-evident. But um, her gift to me was saying it wasn't so Mm self-evident to everyone. So I, but I made it demonstrated why it would be a good idea. So, you know, I, I meant to ask you, what was the name you were born with? It wasn't Simone. No, it wasn't. It was Mary. Mary. Yes. Good Catholic so, girl. Okay. Good Catholic. But I, but I also tease saying that, that I was actually named after my grandmother, but uh, my mother also, when she grew up, had a horse named Mary. So whenever, whenever I would... You know, try to get my mother, I would say, no, I was just named after your horse. That's all. <laughs> well, but, and I really love, I really love the name, it, the reason you took the name Simone after Simon Peter. Right, right. Well, it, it really is because I'm quite like Simon Peter. I mean, I, well, <laughs> we ride around in a bus, but Simon Peter jumped out of a boat. I mean, he got excited and jumped out of a boat. He was forever talking before he thought. And that's yeah. me. I, I just, it just seems clear and I'll just leap into it. And then quite like Peter, after he's jumped out of the boat, you know, he's like, oh, holy moly, what I do? And then he gets scared and starts sinking. So I, I can relate to that. I can relate. But, but you know, it's, um, it's, count, it's counterintuitive. I mean, it's, I mean, it's the whole fact that Simon Peter is the rock on which the church is founded is counterintuitive when you start reading those stories about him, right? But when you know about the church, then it seems like kind of consistent. So. Um, yeah, well, it all makes sense then. But, 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 but the fact that this is a, that you took this name um, of this figure who is at one and the same time, you know, legendary and, uh, and powerful but also deeply flawed and kind of unfortunately human again and again. Absolutely, absolutely. And the other piece is is that he also is not afraid to tell Jesus that he loves him. So he's also vulnerable. And in that combination of both thinking he's tough and then being so vulnerable and risking all and getting so frustrated with Paul, getting it wrong getting but, it wrong yeah. over and over and then oh yeah right right yeah. oh yeah yeah right right but keeping at it yeah i mean keeping at it 
Perseverance. Yeah. yeah. It's a good model. Yeah. So in 2004, um, you were invited, I believe. You were, you were recruited to become the executive director of this lobbying organization, right. Network. Right. So you are non-sister, poet, lawyer, lobbyist. <laughs> <laughs> um, Again, and you know, what network, does network stand for something? No. Okay. But the reason we have it all in capitals. Yeah. Why is, is it all in capitals? The founding mothers wanted to be sure that it stood out in the list of other organizations. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> right. So they said it shall be all capitals. <laughs> so when you start your very first yeah, no, day, I thought, you are wow, told, what does this stand for? I know it's a very long sentence. No, no, it doesn't um, stand for anything. Founded in 1972, <clears throat> 47 Catholic sisters founded this thing on a shoestring budget. Right, $187 that they collected. Really? Yeah. They passed around a bag and collected it, and that was it. And what did they want? Uh, they want? They didn't want another organization, but what they wanted was a network of the sisters in the United States to who were doing charity at the time, but the call really was to do systemic change, to work to change the federal policies, and required us to be active on Capitol Hill. So the whole plan was, as Senator Kennedy used to call us, the nuns' lobby. And even though we grew, did he really he called yeah, you the, he called nuns, us lobby. the nuns' lobby, yeah. <laughs> and so um, the we grew and became lay folks. Um, and when I started, it was probably maybe about half sisters, half lay folks as members. But um, the whole idea was to affect policy on Capitol Hill, get Catholic social tradition, Catholic social teaching into the best of who we are and make policy based on real live needs. That was our goal. Mm-hmm. So. You know, I want to, you, um, you said somewhere that over the years, your spiritual, spirituality and prayer life have deepened to become what you called a contemplative life of walking willing. Um, <laughs> that that defines who you are and, yep. and how you do this work. And I think how this work continues to evolve, um, both in vision and action. So tell, what do you mean by that? What is that? Well, the the okay the the heart of who I am is the contemplative, and Gerald May in this amazing book Will and Spirit says that the only thing that we bring to the contemplative life is a willing heart, and that the two things that shut down the contemplative life are fear and holding on, grasping, and so what I've come to realize is that for me, this journey is about continuing to walk willing towards the hope, the vision, the perspective, the opportunities that are given. But it comes from a place where, um, well, like this, Um, we said in, in July, well, let's see, maybe it'd be possible. And and so for me, for with a willing heart, is to say, here's an opportunity. I'm willing. The whole reason I'm here is be, to go to St. Kate's, and that's being willing. I was in, where was I, Chicago, and then I was in Texas last week and in Guilford, Connecticut. But it's all about where people are hungry. I get invited to where people are hungry, and I'm willing to try to be food for them. Mm. Just be available. Just be present. And listen to their stories or tell mine and 
but it, it's all about keeping my heart open to what's around and not closing up. Because mm-hmm. one of the things I've discovered, because some people say, oh, you travel all the time. It must be exhausting. The only time I get tired is if I start worrying about me. If I start focusing on myself, thinking, oh, my God, looking at my schedule, it's terrible. Then I, then I lose energy. But, but the whole contemplative life thing is about walking willing, aware that we're one body and that I'll be nourished in the process mm-hmm. if I give myself over to this bigger need. But, but I do know about you also that you have a serious Zen practice, that yep. that's also part of your contemplative life. Um, and that you do, as busy as you are, and as big a job as you have, you, you also do, you do cultivate that. And I think you, oh. take, you take time away, you know, you, you go on retreat, you, you do take time to immerse in meditation and contemplation. Absolutely. I, I mean, I, I meditate every morning. I mean, it's essential. It's yeah. essential. What is that? What has the um, addition of the, you know, you were a contemplative before you, before you had a Zen practice, but it's a, it's, a different, it's a different approach. It's a different lineage. What does that add? How does that complexify um, your contemplative life? I think what it was for me, I, the first time I did a Zen retreat, it was at our retreat house that my community runs in Encino. And it was like, I don't know, it was like diving into this pool, this refreshing pool. It was so exciting. I didn't want to go to bed at night. I was, I was really a little nuts. But, the, <laughs> um, but for me, it, I had been dabbling in centering prayer and trying to find a way. But this was like a doorway to a form that could be used in any... Zen can be used with any content because Zen is the discipline of the meditation. And okay, so so my experience was this of meeting, of having in my imagination the sense of a sage uh, saying, inviting me to go deeper. And that uh, being willing to do that was the biggest gift of my life ever. And being willing to know that, how can I say this? Well, to know that we're one body. All of creation is one body. And I'm only just a little piece of it. But the freedom of knowing that means I just have to do my part. It's. I mean, I, I don't know how to communicate. And I, how I think, I think what you're describing is really being immersed in that knowledge. That it's it's visceral. It's knowing. not here. Yeah. It's here. Yeah. It's in the it's in the guts. It's mm-hmm. like yes. Mm-hmm. So being able to then to come walk from, out of meditation and live out of that place. Right. Because on the cushion, on doing the Zen is is the easy part of the contemplative life. The harder part is the living in relationship, the living it out, the consistently trying to do what I call deep listening, listening to the needs around me, listening to what I'm, you know, to where we're being nudged and drawn, listening to people's stories, listening to the murmurs inside of me. It, that's the tougher part. 
And and the sitting part is just like I say it's like this, you know, life's like a snow globe and it gets all shaken up. And then sitting, doing Zen, you put the snow globe down and it all sinks down and there's clarity for one brief shining moment every now and then. But I must say that my current my current little mantra is to God is wake me up, please wake me up. So I feel like I need a new waking up. Hmm. So in 2010, 11, 12, <laughs> you were running this organization that was doing great and important work. And you were worried, as a good executive director would be, that I had to get the word out <laughs> yes. about marketing. <laughs> Branding, they Branding. tell me. Branding. Right. <laughs> and the Vatican came along, as you tell the story, and provided that. Wasn't it nice of them? <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, well, it was our 40th anniversary on April 14th, 2012, and that was a big question. How do we get the word out? And then four days later, the Vatican answered our prayer by naming, naming our little organization in the center of the Leadership Conference of Women Religious. I mean, still can't quite believe they did it. We only had nine full-time staff at the time, and we made the whole Vatican nervous. I mean, that was just like (laughs) beyond, beyond. But the thing that I knew very quickly was that... I could engage with the press, whereas the sisters from LCWR, the leadership conference, couldn't because the leadership conference is actually created by Rome. And, but network? Oh, no, not so much. So um, I could be involved in the press and tried to be a moderately sane perspective. But my, my prayer really at that time was, how do we use this moment for mission? How do we use it for mission? Because all the reporters wanted to talk about religious life and do you take vows and, you know, aren't you just being disobedient? And trying to explain to a reporter about religious obedience is not military obedience. Religious obedience is about deep listening in community. I mean, they just, it was like, yeah, right, sister, whatever you say. No wonder the Vatican was Now say something controversial. Exactly. Now say, and the other piece was, I think I accomplished this. I never said a thing negative about the bishops, ever. And in the shadow of the conflict, I just talked about different missions, that the bishops had the responsibility to protect the institution, and ours was to take the gospel to where it wouldn't be otherwise. So um, it was challenging. But as a result of that, uh, what happened was that in my prayer about how do we use this moment for mission, the story of the Samaritan woman at the well came, where Jesus is in a strange country, He's a man. He's not supposed to talk to a woman. He's a Jew. He's not supposed to talk to the Samaritan. So what does he do? He not only talks to her, but he asks her for help. Would you give me something to drink? And so what I took from meditating on that was to ask our secular colleagues in D.C. to come together to help us figure out what to do. How do we deal with this? Because it was like drinking from a fire hose, you know. It was just huge. Both how how do you respond, but also how do you... 
How do you use it, right? Exactly. How do we yeah, use this, this moment, moment for mission? Of notoriety. Yes. Help, help. And so in that in all of that, is that how the idea came to to get the nuns on the bus? Right. It was it was amazing. We had an hour and a half meeting with thirty five of our secular colleagues. A few of the Catholics came along, but I told them that they couldn't say anything because they were so angry and so depressed. They were not helpful, so they could be in the room but not say anything. um, And and the sign of Pentecost, really, it was a Pentecost moment, is that no one knows who first said road trip, but at the end of an hour-and-a-half meeting, we were going on the road, we were pushing back against the Ryan budget, we were lifting up the works of Catholic sisters, and um, going in a bus. And they told me it had to be a wrapped bus. And I had no idea what a wrapped bus was. I was so afraid it had something to do with wrapped music. <laughs> and, then, and then only to discover that it was W-R-A-P. You know, right. like, it's the wallpaper on the bus. But um, we knew nothing. We were totally... And that was an example of walking willing, because... It was the idea. It was the consensus of the group. I had no idea what it meant. I had no idea where it would lead. But You didn't know it would lead to nine states, 2,700 miles, miles, two weeks. Right. And, and after the first one, we didn't even do an evaluation because I never thought there would be a second one. So, yes, we had no idea where it was going. But that's walking willing, doing the best you can with all the nudges around. So I did... Um, I did just really impress my 16-year-old son by telling him that you were not only on... You were on both The Daily Show and The Colbert Report. <laughs> I know, it's yeah, pretty amazing. Um, but, <clears throat> but I... You know, I think so many of us, we, we heard about the nuns on the bus. It became this, became this phrase, you know, and there's this... Language of the nuns, the N O N E S, the right. who I call the new non-religious, and and when that when that's kind of thrown into a public discussion, I'll often say not 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 nuns as in the nuns on the bus. <laughs> I mean, you've entered the lexicon. Our, our trademark, uh, we trademarked the title, you know. He did, and, and our trademark lawyer is very worried that it has entered into culture because then. Oh, because then you can't have it. See, you're still thinking about branding like a good executive director. (laughs) Um, But that experience, I mean, beyond all the hype, and there was a lot of great hype, um, and, you know, eventually speaking at the Democratic Convention and going to the White House, but um, what did that... I have to think from what I've read and just a little bit I've spoken with you before that it it plunged you in a whole new way into the world that you were in Washington lobbying for. Um, yeah, that's a good way to say it. I, I think the great gift of the bus, uh, among the great gifts of the bus, are that it put us in contact with folks all over the country, and we became a way for them to find hope, to find community, um, to come together. Mm-hmm. On this last bus trip this past fall, uh, on voter turnout, we everybody who pledged to vote got to sign the bus. That became like magic. 
magic. And I was with some people in Chicago, some sisters in Chicago, who had been with us in Chicago, and they had looked on the bus to find their sisters from Iowa, who had signed the bus earlier, and who else did they know? And then by the time we got to Colorado, the thing was just filled, and so everybody's looking for friends, and, you know. So it became a, a rolling experience of community. And that's the piece that I think the bus is about, because all are welcome on the bus. And that is something that is missing, missing deeply in our nation right now, that all could be welcome. I really like the way you talk about being for the 100 percent. You know, I mean, in some ways, a lot of the issues you take up and the policies you take up are maybe uh, in a superficial way associated with this language of the the ninety nine percent, which which had its moment and it's right, had its right. meaning. Well, and but, it set it up for and me to be able to say one hundred percent. But yeah, exactly, it set it up. But but that you that you do you talk about we the people and you talk about being for the hundred um, percent. Well, it's because. Everybody's story has a place, but no one should be dominating the rest of the community. And and that piece is, I I got this chance to talk, we're doing business roundtables, and I got this chance to talk to some entrepreneur CEO types. And so um, I got to ask them finally this question that I've been really wondering about, which was, the report was that the average CEO of a publicly traded company got $10 million in salary a year, and they were going for $11 million. And so I got to ask them, well, guys, I'm kind of curious about this. Is it that they're not getting by on $10 million, that they need $11 million? I, I don't get it. And this one guy said, just like this, he said, oh, no, Sister Simone, that's not it. It's not about the money. It's not about the money? Well, you could have fooled me. I mean, that's, you know, what's it about? He said, it's, we're very competitive and we want to win. And money just happens to be the current measure of winning. Mm -hmm. And then I think, well, could we have a measure that's a little less toxic? Because that's it. It's not that they want to hoard this money. They want to win. And so if we can understand for the common good what is underlying their desire, and then we could find some other measures that would free up money so they pay some decent wages, for heaven's sakes. So anyway, it was an interesting conversation. But seeing, having the curiosity to see their perspective allows for finding new solutions. Because if we just fight and resist, this is the other piece about the contemplative life, if we just fight against something, it reinforces it. And what I've learned is that we've got to fight for a vision so that we can stand side by side and articulate the vision, but we can do it together. Everybody can do it. Hmm. You, you, you wrote, um, staying open-handed, treasuring but not grasping is critical to the contemplative stance. I also believe that's how we have to think of our economic life together. Yes. It's a really intriguing statement. Say, say some more. Well, if we're open-handed, 
then I know a few things. One is no guarantees. All is fragile. It's all gift. And it also needs to be shared. And being willing to share what I have or what I have been given then becomes the way that we can really engage each other. And one of the pieces that gets lost is, is it's as much monetary as it is our stories. Each person has such an important story to be told and and heard and reverenced, but sitting open-handed then receives those stories. And that very act of storytelling becomes um, enriching to the teller and enriching to me as receiving it. Mm -hmm. And that creates the bond of community where then the economy is better because we build each other up. How could I leave you out if I've heard your story? I can't. So I have to make sure you're okay. Mm -hmm. Check in every now and then. But, you know... I mean, we're kind of rediscovering story in all kinds of ways, but even stories get, you know, they get woven artfully into political speeches, right? And, and so that's not saying you're wrong, but we still have to work. Well, if, you know one of the problems with most of the stories in the political speeches is somebody else went out and found the story, and then it gets slipped into a politician's talk. Mm-hmm. I mean, the president does it in the State of the Union. I've been asked for stories. Right. But the problem is, is the real power of story is to let my heart be broken by the story, to hear it from you directly mm-hmm. or to hear it from whoever directly. Mm-hmm. Then I'm never, the, I'm never the same. And as opposed to using it as a, a good shtick. Mm-hmm. I mean... You um, you tell a lot of stories of people you met on the road, um, and they're they're the kind of stories that we're becoming familiar with. Um, stories of good people who are working too many jobs and still not getting by. Stories of college students who are carrying way too much to be able to focus on that. Um, Stories of people who don't have the money to get the care they need and die too young. Um, I uh, am aware in myself, and I and I think all around me. Maybe those of you in this room. There's so many of us um, are so anguished about mm. these gulfs that seem to be growing in our in our. Society in our in our community in our nation, and uh, it's not that we don't care. You know, we care deeply, but we don't know how to connect that care in meaningful, practical ways um, to to do something about it. Well, well, I think there's um, there's several levels of that. One is the doing something. Um, I sometimes think we in the United States think we ought to do something about everything and that it's my job to fix everything. Well, it's not. That's that's way beyond us. It's more important, I think, that 
we listen deeply to our stories and then see where it leads. But it doesn't mean fixing everything. Let let me give you an example. Okay, I talk about Margaret, who died because she didn't have health care in 2012, and her sister brought me her picture uh, in Cincinnati when we were on the bus. And so I've talked about Margaret. I talked about Margaret at the Democratic Convention. I talk about Margaret every place. And Margaret has fueled my commitment to the full implementation of the Affordable Care Act because Margaret wouldn't have died if she could have gotten health care. Yeah, and also that's where you work, right? That's the exactly. level you work at. That's what you do. You work that's, on policy. That's what I do. Yeah. But do you know what happened? Uh, in Lexington, on the bus this, this year, Lexington, Kentucky, I'm waiting there to, we we're going to have a big rally, and I'm getting my head together as much as I ever do. And, and um, this woman comes up, taps me on the shoulder, and says, I'm Nancy. I'm one of Margaret Kistler's sisters, and I just want to say thank you for talking about Margaret. You've helped heal my family. Thank you. And then she walks away. And it was like, what, what? So I chased her down and, you know, hugged her and cried and we did all that. But, but what I realized was my knowing Margaret fueled my energy for my part, but we never know what the consequence of our part is. And, and it turned out that it was healing for their family because it gave some meaning to a senseless death. And they were really blaming each other that Margaret died and none of the, her siblings helped her. And so my, while well, Margaret fueled me, my action fuels them to healing, and that's community. But I, I had no idea about it. I was just doing my part. So and that's the piece. If we all do our part in Whatever our part is, wherever we are. Whatever our part is. Just do one thing. That's mm-hmm. all we have to do. Mm-hmm. But but the guilt of the or the curse of the progressive, the liberal, the whatever is that we think we have to do it all, and then we get overwhelmed, and I get all those solicitations in the mail, and I can't do everything, and so I don't do anything. But that's the mistake. Community is about just doing my part. I, I oh, can I no tell? go on yes. Can, yeah. can I, tell? Yeah. I I decided. You know how in the scripture it's it, Paul says how we're one body. Not everybody's an ear, not everybody's an eye. So one day I was meditating and I was trying to figure out what part of the body of Christ I am. So I came up with this insight that I think I'm stomach acid. I think that's my job. <laughs> it's really important for metabolizing food. Yes. And um, it can it not, you don't need a large quantity of it, and it needs to be contained. <laughs> and if it runs amok, that's called illness. But, um, but see, it's, it's, it's doing. A, it's a great analogy for, for law, the whole lobbying industry. Exactly, exactly. Yes, yes. It generates energy and yes. heat, and it does all kinds of good stuff, but it's a very specific, small mm. piece. That depends on a whole system to be healthy and effective. So I just do your little part. I'm thinking about um, Rachel Naomi Remen. Do you know her? She's a no. physician. Um, and years ago, she told me the story of um, how her Hasidic grandfather told her the story of behind the creation of the universe and, and the, that Jewish ethical commandment to the repair the world. Yes. And what she said, which echoes what you said, is that you know, we can if you if you hear it as I have to repair the whole world, then you just feel overwhelmed and hopeless. But she said we're called to repair the part of the world we can see and touch. It's all about mm. seeing those shards of the original light, wherever you are, whatever you can see. 
How is that what lovely. you're saying? Is that what you're exactly. saying? Like whoever exactly. Whoever we are, wherever we are. We all have a piece of it. And we can do this. Um, I told you before we started that you always get drawn out out as a political activist, and I wanted to draw you out more as a contemplative and a theological thinker. And just wonder how you would talk in theological and spiritual terms about this challenge before us of um, you know what we so antiseptically call income inequality. Um, Well, I think it is the chasm of our age, the challenge for us to turn around from individualism and to know that if I really know I'm one with you, then that's going to affect the choices I make. And that is a spiritual practice as well as an economic practice. Pope Francis is doing a great job at at making this known right now by saying that every economic decision has a moral component and that we are all needing to work to come together in community. And what he's doing, walking towards everyone in love, is fabulous. I mean... Even all these cardinals that really don't like him, he's just (laughs) embracing them with love. It's wonderful. I mean, it's so spiritually bold. But that's really what I think we need in our society. That would also be a different approach to politics. It's what I try to do, actually. I, I try, well, a couple of years ago on retreat, Uh, my retreat director pushed me to realize that I did have a list that I thought um, of folks that I called mistakes of God. And, and, you know, the folks that should have been voted off the island, it was God on an off day. But you know what? I, I came to realize that if I was at odds with the God in them, I'm at odds with the God in me. And so I need to hold compassion in my heart for Paul Ryan and... Actually, he's easier. I've gotten to know him better. We don't have to name names. Oh, no, I have to name names because it's my sin. It's my sin. And so... But John John Boehner... But Boehner's trapped. I came to realize that Boehner's trapped in his desire to be speaker and the fact that he's got two parties he's trying to lead and it's make, he's, it's, he's paralyzed. And what an awful place when you've worked all your life to get to be a leader and then you can't lead. The, worst you, the, the best you can do is not do something. I mean, it, it's, it's a horrible place. So I'm trying to hold compassion in my heart for everybody. It might be easier if I was Pope, but I'm not going to be Pope. But anyway. <laughs> um, in just a couple of minutes, we will open this up. So if you have... Trent, are we? Where are you? Are we doing? There's. Are we doing questions, pieces of paper as well as if people want to write? So, so I'll tell you what we're doing. We're we're trying to be compassionate to the introverts among us as well as the extroverts, since a few of us are introverts. And I always feel like you know when you have a microphone in the middle, it's the extroverts who stand up and ask their questions. So if you feel comfortable 
with a microphone. We're going to ha- pass that around. But also, if you have a question you'd like to write on a piece of paper for whatever reason, um, then do that, and they'll be collected in just a couple of minutes. Um, uh, you've said that you think at this moment in time, we are called in the United States to develop a theology of insecurity. What does that mean? Oh, well, um, that started a a long time ago um, for me, because in the 80s, I was totally enamored of liberation theology. I thought it was fabulous. It was wonderful. It fit my thing. But then I realized, holy moly, I live in the first world, and the reason why third world Latin America needs liberation theology is because of our first world oppression. So what was our agenda? What, What was the theology we needed to develop? And what I... I came to this insight of, I think our sin is our obsession with security, our obsession that everything ought to work out perfectly for us, that we ought to have every conceivable drop of oil ever that we'd ever need any time, that we have to have, uh, you know, electricity and, and guaranteed that I brought the right clothes, so I brought extra just in case I needed extra layers. I mean, all this obsession with having everything we need, security. And what that, oh, and then look at our response to September 11th, 2001. I mean, just went nuts with the topic. And that obsession. And then security never, ever works the way we want it to. (laughs) Because it's illusory. Never, ever quite. It's an illusion. It's an illusion. And rather, we would be better off if we made peace with insecurity. Can, Can I give you a recent example that... I, I hadn't thought of the connection, but but um, until just now, as you asked the question. But I I don't know if y'all heard about the metro train yellow line thing smoke event they called it. Anyway, I was in the, the Where, was car that in DC in DC, uh-huh. and a woman died, and it was a horrible, terrifying smoke event. Anyway, it was. Arcing and fire—I don't know—burning. I didn't understand. I don't understand it. But anyway, um, I was in the in the metro train, and I I didn't think we were going to get out alive, quite frankly. And so, but what was interesting, thinking of it as insecurity, is that walking willing was about surrendering then too. Okay, if this is it, this is it. Um, <laughs> as juxtaposed to another man who just got hysterical, demanding he'd be seen immediately, he'd be taken care of, and where were the firefighters? I mean, he just like went nuts and just blamed all the firefighters that eventually got there, the first responders. The, I mean, and I could understand he was terrified. I tried to calm him down a little bit. I was afraid he was going to have a heart attack just because he was so irate. But nothing bad should ever happen to him was his approach, as opposed to saying, stuff happens. And that our position in the world would be a lot less toxic if we were less insisting on exporting our culture, our attitudes, our television programs, which is the biggest source of trouble, 
uh, which we don't ne- we never think of that. And we can keep Mad Men though, can't we? <laughs> we can keep it for ourselves, but do we have to share it with yeah. everyone? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so for me, insecurity is about accepting uh, our role, moving away from our role as the first world dominator, into saying we're all vulnerable. It's all illusion. You know. What you're talking about is true in any individual life as much as it's true in communal life or national life, those impulses um, and how self-defeating they can be. But, um, you know, I was just looking back at this this language. You talked about um, the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s asked every religious order to go back to its foundations and articulate its foundations, its core and your, um, your order, the Sisters of Social Service, the language that really grabbed me talked about living out of an informed social consciousness. That's really kind of, that's kind of a piece of evolution, right? I mean, like spiritual evolution. And I feel like what, what you're describing, a theology of uncertainty, of insecurity. Insecurity. Insecurity, uncertainty. Same so, thing. Similar. Similar. Okay, similar. related. Um, very hard for us just physio- physiologically as creatures but on the other hand we're at this place in the 21st century where we're learning that about ourselves but, but it's well, kind well, of a leap at, right it's kind of a leap oh, that it's, it's a huge that leap. we have to make um, because the very certitude that we have as we sail around the world making a mess of things is what then gets reacted to ISIS is a direct response to our cultural domination and their fear of it. And they're as busy trying to be protective and certain of themselves as we are trying to be protective and certain of ourselves. And that is not a good way forward. It is not a good way forward. But how do you break out of that? I I think one of the biggest developments that's come in because of that is a better relationship with Iran. I mean, there's been a lot of back channels in getting the Iranians to help. Uh, Our relationship with the Iranians is improving as we work together to deal with that because we see we can't, we as this dominant nation, have no entree to them. But Iran does. And so they've been able to do some back-channel conversations. I mean, now that's some good news out of this horrible <laughs> mess. Yeah. yeah. Okay, let's hear from you. Oh, everybody's shy. Hmm? Um, so is there, there's a microphone if you want to raise your hand. And there's some anonymous cards. And there are Those some are cards fun. coming. There's Lily Percy, our senior producer. Hi. What an honor to be here. Um, So I'm here tonight with some of my fellow students of female mystics. I'm wondering if you can um, tell us who is your uh, favorite and why. (laughs) Lovely. Oh, how could it not be Hildegard? I mean, she got excommunicated three times, and then gets made a saint in the doctor of the church. I mean, really. I mean, really. 
I, I mean, and then I wondered, did they really read her writings? You mean when they made her a saint? When they made her, yeah. And a doctor of the church, and she's, she's one of these illustrious teachers of the church. I mean, this is high poobah activity. Thomas Aquinas, Hildegard of Band, same level. Whoa. She wrote all about the feminine of God. It was fabulous. So. <laughs> we have a strong theology of women, so, yeah. I, I mean... But then there's, there's different aspects. I mean, quite frankly, Teilhard de Chardin is a big influence for me in some of my thinking. Mm. And yeah, he talks about spiritual evolution. Yeah. Well, and he talks about fire on the earth. And, and yes. see, that, that for me is the, the, ins, uh, the other part of this radical acceptance in, in fighting for, when you put those two together, for me that's fire. And so it's like we're all called to be the burning bush. I think the the Christian sto- the Jewish story is located in the bush, and then the Christian evolution of that story. Then we all become bits of flame and are all called to be a burning bush. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, what does Teilhard say about fire? He says <gasps> we will discover. What is it? Uh, oh no! No, I just blocked it. Oh, it's about, well, it's about fire on the earth. It's the end of mass on the world, and it is, it's the whole idea of, of Christ as the embodiment of all, that it's the fire of life, but I can't yeah. call it Is that. there also something about discovering fire for the for second the time, time. Yeah. that we love? No, oh, we will, right. Yeah, well, obviously something we like have. <laughs> Clearly a memorable yeah. statement. <laughs> We should that's, Google that's it. That's another Sorry, show. Really. We got that. We got oh, okay, that one covered. Okay. It's in yeah, the archives. Yeah, have Ilya for that. She's all yeah. in it. Uh, your work, sister, with uh, lobbying with network, doesn't always get the media spotlight uh, as other issues in the Catholic Church. Uh, most discussions that I have with people uh, about my faith as a Catholic kind of end with abuse scandals and. There's really no discussion after that. So what is something that you wish kind of the, the general public knew about the, the Catholic faith that doesn't always get talked about? Oh, what a lovely question. Um, the third chapter of Pope Francis's Joy of the Gospel, that the dignity of each person requires sufficient resources to be able to live in dignity and care for their families and that that's the bedrock of Catholic teaching. And I'm getting much bolder saying that our faith got a bit hijacked by a few who wanted to make the dignity of the individual only about the birth of individuals and not about actual life and uh, making sure that it's abundantly clear Catholic social teaching is all about the dignity of all life and all creation. And it's much bigger than just birth. And the, the political conn- uh, conniving that went in to hijack that part of our faith just drives me nuts. But um, there's so much more. There's so much more. And that all are welcome. I mean, see, this is this is if you look, if you read the gospel, Jesus is all about all being welcome. And I don't know where we got off the rails on that one, but 
We're getting getting better. I just say now we have a little trouble with middle management. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> we got good leader, good bottom, and the middle management. So. Uh, so we have a question yeah. from Oakland, California, from one of our columnists, uh, oh. Courtney Martin. Is she listening? Or do we have people she's listening online? She's watching the live stri- okay. video stream, and she's tweeting along with yeah. it. So, yes, yeah, she's doing oh, great. everything. And she's juggling. Um, <laughs> and she's juggling. So it's a question about certainty, I think. How do you distinguish between wise conviction and seductive but overly simplified sureness? Really good question. Having just been certain about what Catholic social teaching is all about. Um, I think that goes back to that contemplative stance about listening deeply and being able to know where my roots are. Things can change. Like, like policies can change. Like um, oh, currently we're fighting about uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership and Fast Track and all this, all this well, What's the Trans-Pacific Partnership? Oh, it's a international free trade agreement modeled on the North American Free Trade Agreement, and okay. we've been opposed to it. Okay. We've been opposed to it. But what I realized is I had a new insight, and a new insight is that the dislocation caused by these free trade agreements created the pressure of having all those kids on our border last summer and cause the disequilibrium in local countries to create that crisis on our border for which we have refused to fix our immigration law to address these problems. So rather than just having a simplistic no, I've developed a more complex analysis of stuff because of policy and seeing the integration of policy. But this doesn't change the roots of the dignity of each individual and the part that I care about, that we are all creatures of God and that God hums us at every moment. And, and that is like a bedrock piece, but you can change your theories and your thoughts and your ways of looking at things. But bedrock, when it's a visceral experience, you can't change. So you have another visceral experience, I guess. There's something you wrote about deep listening as a compass, which I think speaks to that. And you actually offered some questions, which I just think are really great tools for all of us to hear these questions. Um, You said, for me, the religious life is about deep listening to the needs around us. The question becomes, am I responding in generosity? Am I responding in selfishness? Am I responding in a way that builds up people around me, that builds me up? That is respectful of who I am. All of those questions are at the heart of how we discern best steps forward. Yep. <laughs> well said, eh? Well said. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a question up here. Up here? I thought I saw someone here oh, as okay. well. No? Wrong? Right here. Oh, don't worry about it. It's all right. Yeah. Yeah, she dressed nicely. You talked about doing our part. <clears throat> Have you ever been doing your part and find someone else doing their part and there's a conflict in your parts? Oh, right. 
Yeah, but it's an important part. Because here's, no, 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 seriously, seriously. In many ways, Paul Ryan's doing his part, and I'm doing my part, and we spend our lives annoying each other. And kind of a, I, I mean, he enjoys sparring with me, and I enjoy sparring with him. But we work at it in different ways. But here's, here's what's happened, is that my sparring with him, as annoying it was, as it was to him, he got talking about poverty. It affected him. Now, I still don't like what he's saying, but, you know, it's a step. And he has affected me in that I'm more concerned about how he's doing, trying to give him more experiences so that he can uh, adjust how he sees these issues. So even though we've been working sort of on opposite sides in a way, it has affected my intersection has affected him and he's affected me and I think we're better for it one thing that happened that was really kind of sweet was I got to testify in front of the house budget committee and he, when he was chairing it last session and uh, one of the crazy Republicans went out after me how I shouldn't be believed because I was censured by the Vatican and so nothing was trustworthy and Paul Ryan defended me it was kind of sweet you know he said wow Sister Simone is well within the teaching of the church, and it's, it's, yeah, I mean, you know, we may not agree on these things. Oh, that's so thought, great! We don't hear those stories. Yeah. yeah, that was kind of sweet. But but it's that it's the intersection where we have affected each other. If we let ourselves be touched, that's the thing. So just do our part. Walking willing, right? Walking willing. Uh, this, uh, okay, somebody back there. Over the next five years, uh, how do you see the Catholic Church evolving in its role for women? Oh. <laughs> All right. Any crowd that took 350 years to figure out Galileo might be right is not noted for rapid change. So let's put it in perspective. But what is happening is that um, some things that people aren't hearing about, Pope Francis appointed a woman to head one of the pontifical theological schools in Rome. This was fairly earth-shattering in theological realm, uh, you know, studies areas, because it was always thought only boys had big enough brains to do that or something, I don't know. Um, and so, uh, and women have been appointed to this council that's working on the issue of abuse. Um, women are uh, gradually getting uh, more positions, but but here's Pope Francis is not going to change the rules. Pope Francis is all in, in, if you read Joy of the Gospel, he's got this section on peace building. And that's what I think he's doing in the Catholic Church. He's got four points. The first is that, um, uh, let's see, well, unity prevails over conflict. So we hunger to be connected. Uh, that time is more important than space. What he means by that, it sounds like Einstein or something. What he means by that is that to create peace, you can't defend your turf. You can't defend your space. You've got to engage in dialogue, and dialogue extends over time um, and is much slower than defending your turf. Uh, okay, unity prevails over conflict. 
uh, oh, reality is more important than ideas. Your stories are more important than theories. That's why Paul Ryan and I can get into it, because it's all about theories. But then I keep telling them stories to try to shake them um, in kind of a nonviolent way. Um, <laughs> and then the last one is that the whole is greater than the sums of the parts. But if you don't have one of the parts, you can't have peace. And so that all the parts are needed at the table. And so I think that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to build peace in a church that had been so divided, so hurt, so split apart by certitude and turf, by preferring the fight as opposed to not hearing the stories of real people and not having everybody at the table. He's trying to do the opposite. And so that, to me, is way more important than some juridical edict um, about women because it, it, it's a better building for the future, I hope. I think that's hard. I, I, I do experience Catholics to have a long view of time <laughs> and a long sense of how much time things change. Geologic takes. time, yes. Yeah, <laughs> right. But I think that well, that we're losing the ice shelf really quickly, so maybe geologic time will go <laughs> well, speeding up. Speeding up, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, just what you just said, um, as such a strong, vibrant woman and a leader, uh, I, th- I think it wouldn't make sense to a lot of, I don't know, say, young American feminists. Um, but, but here's the thing. My role is um, to be priestly in places where the gospel wouldn't go otherwise. And if I were ordained as clerical, that all gets circumscribed by church and needs of parishes and administration and all that, where the freedom of what I have now is, like, huge. And it's responded... I have a chance to respond to people's hungers in such a different way that it's uh, liberating. And then I say in my book, I, I can't, if you read my book, I've got this sort of heretical thing in there about, about uh, ordination and that um, there are different kinds of ordination and people get called to different types of service. And in many ways, what I do is, I mean, I hear many confessions. I comfort many people. I have a chance to speak of the gospel in places that would never happen otherwise. I mean, really, the Democratic National Convention, I mean, that was pretty amazing. So how could I not rejoice in this opportunity? And a lot of it's because of the Vatican naming us. So it's there. They started it. That's right. We have a question from a student from Benilde St. Margaret. Hello, my name is Zeph. Um, I kind of have like a two-part question. Um, so you talk a lot about doing our part. Um, so I'm like kind of, I want to know like what does that really mean? So like how do you know if you're doing enough or if you're doing too little? Like what is like doing your part, I guess like mean, you know? Um, and then like on the lines of that, what is the Catholic Church doing in the wake of events in Ferguson and New York City to rectify its abysmal record on racial justice right now? Amen. Good questions. I think doing your part is the toughest 
as a young person because you're finding your place. Um, find, you're finding your place. And so the challenge always is, is look into the future. It looks dark. Um, I, I, the, when I was in, the, in our formation program in the community, uh, this one retreat guy giving us a retreat said that faith was walking through a mist with your eyes wide open. And that's what it feels like when you're trying to find your place. But then the amazing thing is to look back, it looks like it all was a straight line. You can see the, the straight line of light and that makes us who we are. And so I, I refer to the groping in the dark. And that piece of listening for the nudges and paying attention, paying attention to where the nudges are and don't procrastinate too much. Just do it, act on it. Um, and you'll, you'll know the right way for you forward. Um, if you find yourself not doing anything, beginning to say to yourself, oh, I can't do that and I can't do that. It's because you've got too many ideas in your head. You've got to Focus can help. At least that's what happens to me. Um, Ferguson, oh, the horror of um, the racial reality and the religious intolerance with the Muslim community in our society is horrifying. Um, the relationship with the police is shocking and challenging in many settings. And the church as institution in some places is well engaged and doing good nourishing, but it is not universal. And our um, many of our leaders don't know who are white, don't know white privilege and don't know what privilege they carry. And the anguish is to watch them walk through the world not knowing the consequences of their movements. It's hard to watch. Um, but then there are others who are doing good engagement, who know what it is and are quite well engaged. I was in... Um, where was I? Uh, I was in uh, Santa Clara, California, and the San Jose area has a bunch of tension and there saw a really amazing leadership within the interfaith community led by the bishop in the area of engagement with community with police creating a whole different feel in the San Jose area so I have seen some good things but we have a lot to atone for the sin of our past is and our present it's very challenging thank you for raising it thank you Got okay, we have this and this. A couple more questions. We have time, maybe two more. Uh, sister, if um, a group of, let's say, heads of state and spiritual leaders in Islamic countries and major first world countries came to you and said, we're prepared to put some resources and support into bringing peoples together to end this uh, certainly God's greatest grief is probably the killing of people in his or her name uh, constantly and to begin to uh, push a consciousness of, of our peoples away from this notion of you're better off dead than with that other religion. 
Um, in short, Jesus loves me, but he can't stand you. Uh, <laughs> Allah <laughs> loves him, challenge. but he can't stand us. And yeah. that's it. You get the idea. What uh, would you offer him? Well, a historical perspective. One of the things that's kind of interesting is Islam, that in the 1300s, we did the Crusades and went off and killed people in the name of our faith. Well, Islam is about 1,300 years old, and there, some are doing that in the name of their faith. I wonder if it's an evolutionary piece. The other piece is is to... Um, it's cultural domination that is, um, I think, at the heart of some of this. And what I was saying, we have not adequately accounted for global television, where people feel their culture is being swamped by U.S. TV programs. And if we could support a more variety and indigenous experiences of television, if we could see less. I, I was with our sisters in the Philippines, and we're watching, what was that, America, what's it, America's Next Top Model. And our sisters say to me, do you live in houses like that? And I go, no, we don't live in houses like that. But people don't know that. And so we export this cultural domination through the internet, through television. And we have not addressed that as an issue. And a bunch of the violence is an effort to protect uh, the integrity of a different culture. So I, I, I don't know. I don't have any magic bullets. Talk to each other. Come meet my people. Tranquilizer darts. That was my, my <laughs> suggestion. But. That's good, yeah. Um, I think maybe just two more quick questions. There was one here. 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 Yes. Uh, Sister Simone, you've been uh, identified as a lobbyist. I am. And you mentioned the political circle that you've been engaged with. You mentioned uh, Paul Ryan, John Boehner. And uh, in terms of leadership in our own faith community, the Catholic Church, and, and you had lots of encouragement that you said about Pope Francis. And um, I'm curious about the lobbying effort or whatever has to happen for meaningful change within our, our bishops and within um, our clergy. We need better leaders everywhere. And um, certainly the bus took it out to a grassroots and uh, a... Uh, you know, bring it out to the people, the, the lobbying effort. But I, is, is the only change going to happen from a top down with Francis being benevolent, or is the, are there bishops and clergy who can be uh, propelled in new ways to, uh, to, to greater things, the, the kind of church that we want? Good question, good question. I, I think there's some really good news in that. Um, I mean, the new Archbishop of Chicago, Supic, is like, he was on the list of the best possible choice, a progressive choice for a, heal, a, a church for healing. And everybody said, oh, it was too far out. It was too impossible. It really would never happen. And it did. So, I mean, he was seen like as the most far out candidate. And the other piece that's happened, so I take that as a good sign. 
the other piece that's happening is that many bishops who were frightened by the amount of reporting that was being done to Rome uh, about any little thing or every little thing um, are feeling less fearful. Uh, Bishop Amos in Davenport um, agreed to give me an award. Uh, so that would not have happened. And, and I said to him, this probably wouldn't have happened a couple of years ago, or before Francis, would it? And he said, probably not. Um, so people are are feeling more, uh, priests and bishops are feeling less frightened, like they're going to get turned in um, and uh, have adverse consequences. I find it really sad, though, that our leadership got so frightened because, as we've said, that the antithesis of the contemplative life is fear. Um, that just really means that their own spiritual journeys have been held hostage to their fear. And I'm hoping that Francis's biggest gift to our leaders is to free them from fear. That would be the biggest, the biggest gift that we could have. And the Spirit can work with everybody. I mean, we were talking about my patron, Simon Peter. I mean, the Spirit worked with Simon Peter. It's kind of a miraculous thing. But, uh, I mean, if Peter can do it, we can do it. We can make change. But the other piece is, is that it comes from us. It comes from us. And so how are we about being the people of God? How do we live together? How do we create community? How do we, how, where do we find nourishment for each other? I mean, that's it. And one of the joys for me about the bus is that we do create community wherever we go. It's just wonderful. It's joy. It's the biggest joy of my life. But I think one of the reasons is because the sisters on the bus, we create community together and then we got plenty of room for everybody. So. Do you want one more? Okay, quick one. Um, I wanted to follow up on this question of doing your part. I, I'm really stuck on that. I find uh, that touches on one of the core pains of my life, I would say. So I'm at a different stage in life than the person who brought it up originally. And at my stage in life, I feel like I've found two great uh, passions and great gifts. And it's very satisfying to do those two things. Um, and just sitting here, I can identify ten things within sight that I feel like urgently need to be addressed in our world. Um, and I don't think I'm unique in that regard. I've trained myself to, to see more and more things that need to be fixed in our world. So I've got a long list at this point. And I did hear <laughs> yes, what you said I, about... I feel your pain. I yes, feel your pain. yes, I'm sure you do. And you have uh, seemed to uh, adopted a certain piece about it, which I struggled to maintain for myself. So I heard you say focus uh, as one approach when there are too many things on the horizon, but I get a sense you have more to offer and just wanted to give you a chance to do that. Hmm, pushed. Hmm. <laughs> the, the, it really is that inside listening to where you're being called. And... Um, and what, do you, what gift do you have to offer to the situation? You can offer a bunch of lamentation, but lamentation doesn't often help. And, but what gift do you have to offer in this, in this, to this situation? Who can you connect with? Where, what can you offer? Now, now, the other piece is, is we can lament a lot, but the other piece that I haven't really talked about at all, and... 
but I goof off a lot, is joy. That joy is at the heart of this journey. And if we, too often progressives are really grim, you know. I mean, it's not a very good advertisement, come join us, we're so miserable. You know, I mean, that's, that really isn't, because the amazing wonder is that we get to live this life in relationship. We do live in an amazing country, as painful as it is with our arrogance. We get to know all kinds of people. We live in a hugely complex, multicultural setting, which is not shared in very many places in our world. There are tremendous possibilities, and I get to be here and talk with you all. I mean, that's fabulous. So I'm just... um, Figure out what would give your heart joy. How, where could you contribute and give your, that would give your heart joy? It sounds like you've got two things you're already doing. Maybe that's, maybe that's enough. And maybe there's another little bubbling of joy that could come out someplace else. But the, the giving, the finding your niche is about life giving and enjoying the life that is given to you and to others in the process. I almost forgot to do this. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. (laughs) Okay, now you have to laugh. I'm going to have to read to it now. (laughs) See, this is why I'm supposed to weave it in organically, and I forgot. All right. Doing your part. Yes. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today with Sister Simone Campbell of the Nuns on the Bus at our studios on Loring Park in Minneapolis. Simone, I think um, I think something you've written about also speaks to that that question and the question before, um, and I feel like you've modeled it as much as said it tonight. Which is, you know, I watched you being asked in a religious setting about the future of churches and seminaries and how it's all so uncertain. But, you know, you could say the same thing about the future of schools or about the economy or energy, right? All of our institutions. And you talked about this kind of what I would call a spiritual discipline of focusing on what we are being given rather than what we have or what we need or used to need, maybe then we would better know the needs we are supposed to be responding to. Oh, yeah. I think that attitude takes a lot of practice, though. I feel like that's what we're seeing in you. You've practiced this for a long time. <laughs> well, I, I, I have worked at... Well, my experience is that God gives us the gifts we need before we know we need them to respond to a situation. That's my experience over and over. Like with the bus, I had... I had all these colleagues in D.C., and I didn't know that I needed them until we didn't know what to do in response to the censure, and then they became gold for us, gold. Um, but the And that got started because another friend had taken me to this big table meeting, and that got started because I had worked with them on Iraq. and that So there were gifts and gifts and gifts and gifts. But sometimes when... Uh, like religious life, uh, the big question is, you know, will there be women religious in the future? I mean, we're old for the most part. We have a few new members. We're going to be smaller. It's going to be different. But I think that we're being given gifts right now for a different time. And the gifts women religious are being given is 
that we've got deep spirituality, that we know how to live in community and fight it out, that we can listen we can't do, that, we can't, that we're having to wrestle with death and dying. And when you look at what our nation needs, it doesn't need more schools or hospitals or all that stuff. What it needs are community, spirituality, someone to listen, and dealing with death and dying. So I think the gifts that we're being given as women religious just need to be shared in a whole different way. Mm-hmm. And it's that puzzle about where are we being called, where's the next breakthrough moment, what's the next surprise, is being willing to use our gifts in, for others. Mm-hmm. And I think you're saying that any of us could undertake that kind of reflection about our own lives. It, Including in the midst of what seems to be really failing, what seems to not be the model we grew up expecting. Right, right. That if we'd given our lives to this, that we would all be better. (laughs) If I gave my life as a sister of social service, I was sure the world was going to be in a better place. But um, uh, maybe it's better than what it would have been otherwise. But the, the thing for us is to, what is the gift we've been given that we need to pass on? And we can all find that. You found it. <laughs> um, one of the things you've discovered along your journey is that you like to write poetry. And I wondered if, in closing, you would read Loaves and Fish. Oh, I love this one. one of your poems. Yes. Yeah. Can, can I explain the one joke in here? Yes, you may. <laughs> um, the... Okay, this is loaves and fish, and remember the story in Matthew in the Gospel, and they're out in the countryside, and the apostles say, "Send them back to town; they're going to get grumpy." And um, Jesus says, "Feed them yourselves." And the apostles, "Whoa, we don't have it." Well, at the end of Matthew's account, he says, five thousand men were fed," to say nothing of the women and children. <laughs> well, now that made me mad. <laughs> so. I meditated about that. As you can tell, I have an odd spiritual life, so I thought about it. And I realized they only counted the ones who thought it was a miracle. Because the women had brought food from home, and they shared it. But, but the, the guys, I mean, don't you have this? Don't, don't you experience this all the time? You know, guys will show up, there's food on the table. Whoa, food! What a miracle! Isn't that great? It was like elves produced it. So anyway... So, okay, now that you know that, then you'll, you'll know the line. Okay. Okay, loaves and fish. I always joked that the miracle of loaves and fish was sharing. The women always knew this, but in this moment of need and notoriety, I ache, tremble, almost weep at folks so hungry, malnourished, Faced with spiritual famine of epic proportions, my heart aches with their need. Apostle-like, I whine, what are we among so many? The consistent 2,000-year-old ever-new response is this. Blessed and broken, you are enough. I savor the blessed, cower at the broken and pray to be enough. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you for coming.